So you guys, I just have to tell you that this is an honor to be up here with you. And I'm going to try to use this thing, but if it doesn't work, I'm taking it off because, you know. Um, and I expected to just be riddled with anxiety to stand up here before you today. But God reminded me of something while we were sitting there in worship, and that is that he is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. And he's walked with me through all things in my life. And he's going to walk with me in this too. Um, it's funny that I'm going to talk to you guys today on discontentment and what it's like to struggle with discontentment as a believer because I think there's a lot of believers that struggle with it. Because this week I have struggled with it so much. And it's because I have spent the last three months at home with my beautiful son and my husband. And excuse me if I'm emotional, that's just how the Holy Spirit manifests itself in me, so bear with me. Um, but I'm getting ready to go back to work. And it's not a job that I love. It's a job that is a really good job. It pays the bills, but it's a lot of work. and demands a lot of my time. And to think about going back there and leaving my newborn son and my husband and all the fun that we've had this summer is really hard for me. But as I was worshiping there, uh, God just overwhelmed me with his joy. And that is what I want to talk to you guys about tonight, is that his joy can triumph in that discontentment. I became a believer when I was three years old. It's one of my earliest memories, and it's one of my most vivid memories. I come from a first-generation Christian home, so neither one of my parents grew up in Christian homes. But, so that kind of released like this, you know, like family night with us was like watching Christian movies or movies with like really good values. And so when I was three, we were watching the screen adaptation of Little Women. And I don't know if you guys know that story, but it's, it's about four girls and their sisters and they go through their life together and, you know, all these things that happen to them. Well, I am one of four sisters. And in that story, one of the girls dies. And that just shocked me. I mean, it just hit me at my very little girl hardcore. I was like burst into tears. I'm like having a conniption. I like race up. I turn off the VCR and I'm just going crazy. And my parents are like, what is your problem? You're nuts. And I was like, I know that death is real. And I don't ever want to be away from my family. And that is when I accepted Jesus as my savior. And so that, that was... 25 years ago, and I am here today because he is a lot more faithful than I am. Um, and it's funny, I, I have to tell you that I've been thinking about discontentment, and why are we so discontent when we have received the greatest gift that we could possibly ever imagine receiving? I just had my son, like I told you, and I mean, it's instantaneous. You love that little boy more than anything else in the whole wide world, and it is instantly in your heart. And I am telling you that I love you guys so much, but I wouldn't give my son up for you. I wouldn't sacrifice him on a cross either. But that's what God did. And he not only sent his son down to earth to die an excruciatingly painful death on the cross, he also gave me the inheritance that his son gets, which means I have everlasting life. 
I have the power of his Holy Spirit, who is the wonderful counselor, who gives me wisdom, infinite wisdom, infinite power, infinite glory, infinite love. And that's the reality that I live in every day. It's the reality that I have lived in for 25 years. So how can I possibly struggle with discontentment? Right? Well, last year in June, we lost a baby. Um, that was heartbreaking for us. And it's pretty amazing because almost a year to the day, we have a baby. And that is how good God is. But in that time, I was given a book. It's called 1,000 Gifts by Ann Voskamp. And this, a story of a woman who is struggling with this as a Christian, you know, how... How do I, yeah. I'm going to give you this. Oh, thank you. That's okay, so. Okay. Is this on? We're good? Oh, good. Are we not echoing now? Okay. So in this book, she decides that she's struggling so much with this discontentment factor in her life as a believer that she is going to write down 1,000 things that she is thankful for because she decides that, you know what, that's my only hope is just to be grateful for what I have because I am so depressed. But in the beginning of the book, she has this awesome quote that I want to read to you about why we struggle with discontentment. The thing about discontentment is that it started in the garden. It started at the very beginning. She says, from all of our beginnings, we keep reliving the garden story. Satan, he wanted more. More power, more glory. Ultimately, in his essence, Satan is an ingrate. And he sinks his venom into the heart of Eden. And the heart of Eden, you guys, is that we knew, Adam and Eve knew, constant, perfect communion with God. Satan's sin becomes the first sin of all humanity. It's the sin of ingratitude, the sin of entitlement. Adam and Eve are simply, painfully ungrateful for what God gave. Isn't that the catalyst of all my sins? Our fall was and has always been that we aren't satisfied in what God gives. We hunger for something more, something other. And you guys, I want you to know that post-fall and restoration of our relationship with God through Christ, the desire for something more or something other is not necessarily bad. When we take on the inheritance that we have received through Jesus Christ, it is good that we know that we're meant for more. It is good that we know that we're meant for the other. In fact, God says that in John 10.10, he says, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. I am meant for abundant life and I know that. So in the midst of my trials, in the midst of my day-to-day -day mundane or a season of life that I don't really want to be in, there is a sense of discontentment, yes, from the garden, but there's a sense of discontentment in the sense that I know I was meant for more, and I believe that God has more for each and every one of us in this room. But I also believe that Satan, who is that ingrate, is still my enemy, 1 Peter 5.8 says that we need to be sober and be vigilant because our adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That's his sole purpose, is to destroy you and to halt the spreading of the gospel. 
he is a vanquished foe. He was defeated on the cross, and he knows that. But I don't know if you guys have ever seen a caged animal. When it, we were just in Tahoe a couple weeks ago, and these three little bear cubs got caught in a trap that had been set. And literally for hours, they spent time banging on the sides of that, like thinking they're going to get out, whining, screaming. I mean, you could hear them all the way across our whole complex of where we were staying. And that's how Satan is. If he is defeated, and he is, he's going to spend every ounce of energy he has left trying to be that crazy, caged, you know, prey. And he's going to prey on us. So we can't for a second forget that we are in a battle. Ephesians 6.12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of, he- of evil in the heavenly realms. You guys, I have read this verse five million times. But when I was getting ready to talk, I realized that it, this is crazy to me, that we are battling against the powers of this dark world, and we're also battling the powers of the next. They don't get tired. So the minute that I get up in the morning, they're already battling against me. They are. They're battling to keep me back in that garden mentality where I can be discontent. This means that every good thing that God gave you, he came, Satan came to kill, steal, and destroy it. Um, This became really apparent to me during Jared and my first year of marriage. Um, He shared his testimony with you guys. He's come out of a lot of crazy things. Um, And he is one of the best men I have ever met. I am married to the man of my dreams, and that's the truth. Um, But I realized in our first year of marriage that although that is a wonderful, amazing gift of marriage, just that covenant alone makes Satan very angry. And I need to give you a little bit of background because um, otherwise it will seem crazy. But I met Jared a couple months after I got out of college. And we became pretty good friends. And that created a friendship for about a year and a half. And in that time, um, I realized that he had a lot of stuff going on um, that caused him to make a decision uh, and it, eventually it led to Christ, so I need to let you know that because he did share his testimony, and he is a believer and a miracle. Um, but he made a decision in October of 2010 to book himself into jail. Um, he didn't have to serve that time. He could have done work project through a couple of things that were going on in his life. But being the man that he is and deciding to stay sober, he decided to do some soul searching in there. And he said, hey, would you come visit me? So I did. So our courtship began in jail. (laughs) And that sounds crazy, I know. But a couple years previously, I was walking with a girlfriend way before I met Jared. And... We were like girls do. We're like, what kind of guy are you going to marry? And I'm telling her. And literally, I said two things. I said, one, I'm going to marry a man who's ethnic. Why I said that, my husband is Mexican, I have no idea. 
okay? Secondly, I'm like, I'm going to marry a man with a crazy testimony. And she's like, Whitney, you're nuts. Why would that be like your like qualification? I don't know. I don't, I don't know. But I really wanted that. I wanted somebody who understood grace like no other. And someone who has a testimony like that does understand some grace. So maybe it's because I need it so much. I don't know. But um, so when he tells this story, he will tell you that I fell in love with him immediately. But <laughs> I didn't. I tell a different version. <laughs> so just so you know. Um, that didn't happen, but Jared could try. Um, so anyway, our courtship began in jail. We wrote letters back and forth, and I fell in love with the heart of this man who is deeper than you could ever imagine. And we got married 12 days after he got out of jail. 12 days. So let me say one thing. When someone comes out of that lifestyle... It's an awesome thing, but it makes Satan really mad because he had him. He had him in his clutches, and he was pulling him down fast. And when he got married to me, and we made a decision to serve the Lord in our home, that made him mad. So our first year of marriage was really hard. Not to mention the fact that we didn't really do a lot of preparing for marriage, except for three months in jail, which isn't really preparing And so we took on a lot. Our first year of marriage was so hard that everything that could go wrong did. And I was extremely discontent. And we're both looking at each other and we're like, what did we do? Why would we have chosen this? And you know what is crazy? We lived off of $10 every single week for grocery. We went to the, you know, dollar store and we would get those 10 for 10 pizzas, okay? Yeah? Anybody else? Come on. I know someone else had to, had to have gone something to that. But there was an onslaught of attack for us that year. And what I realized out of that is when you are beginning to live out your God-given destiny, and that man lives out his God-given destiny, it makes Satan mad. And that's okay. <clears throat> so, Through that first year of marriage, God began to teach me a lot about joy, and in the midst of trials, there are very specific lessons that I feel like God taught me that I like to share with you guys. Um, With every blessing, there is a battle. Each battle is important to learn to fight because battles build on one another. Don't be in a hurry to fight that next battle Because the current battle prepares you to have victory in the next one. If we had not gone through that first year of marriage with some amazing people who came beside us, Eric, (laughs) we would not have lived victoriously these past three years. And these past three years just keep getting better and better and better and better. And I can't wait to see what God has for us. But I also learned during that time that joy is a state of the spirit. It's not a circumstance. It is a fruit of our relationship with him. And it has the ability to transcend whatever we are going through. 
Galatians 5.22 says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And I don't know about you guys, but apart from his Spirit, I don't have a whole lot of those things. John 15.5 says, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. You guys, we have a huge fig tree in our backyard. And I hate it because it gets figs all over my yard and my three dogs eat them. And then they get it. Oh, it's terrible. And then they track it in the house. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, it makes me so mad. But this fig tree has taught me a lot about fruit because the minute that fruit falls off the tree, those figs dry. They die. They're not good to eat, and I know because my dogs do things with them that are not good. Um, so they die. They're dead. They're instant, instantly not good for me to eat. So apart from that tree, there's no fruit. And our joy is like that. And if we continue to remain in him, we can have all of those fruits. One of the easiest things to do when we are in the midst of situations we feel discontent in is to isolate. It's pretty tempting, actually. Because the last thing you want to do when you're going through stuff, or maybe you're not going through anything that you feel like you should be discontent about. You know, like when you have a great job and you're like, why do I feel so content in this great job? Because it's a lot of work and there's so many people who need a job and how could I possibly feel discontent in this? You know, that's hard to admit to someone, right? But the thing is, is that isolation from God and others makes us easier to destroy because we're alone. If Satan can just get you isolated, he can destroy you. He can. In fact, the scripture says in Hebrews 10.25 that we should not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but we should encourage one another. Ephesians 4.12 says, though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. When we were going through that really rough time in our marriage, there were two people that we could really call, and I can tell you that we did isolate some because we were just going through so much, I, there was like nothing to give. But I had a woman, her name is Michelle Bigelow, and Jared had Eric. And those people met with us often and gave us counsel, not requiring anything in return. And I can honestly tell you that without those two people, we would not be here today. Our marriage would not have made it. In fact, about halfway through that first year, we both looked at each other and we said, we better try as hard as we can and get to get these people in our lives as much as we can because I'm telling you that if it's still like this at one year, I am going to leave you. It was bad. But because those people were faithful, we survived. And we have a great marriage. I feel like when I was preparing to speak tonight, um, there was something that God really laid on my heart. And that is that, um, and I'm going to just take a minute and just say it, because I felt like he wanted me to say it. Um, when we're talking about isolations, it's really easy to leave the church when we get hurt by the church. And 
I just want to tell you that if that is you and you're sitting in this room, I am so sorry that you have been hurt. But I can tell you that after walking with God for a pretty long time, you start to realize this journey is not something you can do by yourself. I loved what Eric preached last week about resolving our issues and forgiving. You know, unfortunately, the more that you get to know someone, the greater power they have to hurt you. My husband knows me better than anybody else in the whole wide world and can destroy me with one word. And I can do the same. Because I know him pretty well. And I know what would hurt him. And I can bring them down pretty fast. And in the church, we do so much life together. And we get to know each other so well that it's pretty easy to get hurt. I am not perfect. And I know that the church is comprised of really imperfect people. And that's okay. But that's something you're going to have to accept if you're going to be in the church. And I just want to tell you that if you're here today and that has been your story, let someone speak healing over that. Because being in part of the church is pretty awesome. When my son was born, he was in the NICU, which means that we couldn't even see him. But the thing is, is that we had, I am not kidding you, probably 30 people from this body of believers drive all the way to Roseville just to sit with us. Not because they could see my baby or hold him, just to be there for us. And if I gave up on that every single time that someone hurt me or I hurt them, we would miss out on that kind of care. And that kind of care was really necessary in that moment. And I just want you guys to know, if you were those people, thank you for loving us like that. I want to end tonight with um, a last lesson that was pretty profound to me as I was reading through the 1,000 Gifts by Ann Boskamp. And you guys need to know that I'm like a buffet reader, okay? I like pick like seven books and read them all at the same time over the course of like five years. So I never finish one. So really, it's just like I sample. Um, and that's okay. But uh, she has a quote in there that I love. And that is that thanksgiving multiplies. Gratitude releases hope, and hope gives increase to our joy. So here's what she says about that. The real problem of life is never a lack of time. The real problem of life is a lack of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving creates abundance, and the miracle of multiplying happens when I give thanks. Take the just one loaf, or for me, just one hour of sleep. I have an infant, and sometimes I'm like, thank you, Lord, for one hour. But, you know, we can be thankful in that. And if I say that that is enough and give thanks, he miraculously makes it more than enough. I have known miracles like that, and you guys, I have. That when I start to praise him for those little things, suddenly I'm like bursting with joy, and I'm like, nothing in my, in my situation has changed at all. But he multiplies that and gives me more and more and more. So thanksgiving gives way to more thanksgiving, and that makes us joyful. She says that she may be a mother who is tired. Dang, I can, I'm okay. I know that's true. But when my soul magnifies, my time magnifies. I look out my window to the six children I carried on my hip and in my heart and to whom I give every hour of my time, and I realize 
that in my thankfulness I have redeemed time. From neglect and apathy and inattentiveness, when I swell with thanks and weigh down the moment by giving thanks to God for this moment, my moments are multiplied. So I believe that sometimes the greatest way to defeat discontentment is counting all the ways that God has already been faithful. When we count these ways, we multiply the abundance, abundance God has already given, and soon we will be overwhelmed by his goodness. I don't know about you guys, but I love being overwhelmed by his goodness. You know those times where he's just so good to you and you're just like, oh my gosh, I don't deserve it. And you're just so in awe of the way that he just provided that for that bill that you just didn't know you were going to have, but he totally provided for it. I believe that his character and his goodness is always the antidote to my self-focus and discontentment. I have learned a lot about the sacrifice of praise. Praising God is often feels sacrificial to us. And sometimes it is. There's sometimes that you have to choose to praise him because you're going through something that is really hard. And that's okay because he wants that aroma of praise. And I promise you that if you choose to praise him in the midst of your trouble, he will multiply your praise, he will multiply your thanksgiving, and you will be overwhelmed by the goodness of a God who loves you more than anything. That's all I have to say about that.